Talking about invasive species, time now to catch up with our ace reporter Terry Flanagan at his home in Dublin 15. Terry made a documentary about invasive species for Mooney Goes Wild. Oh, I think it was last year or thereabouts, Terry. Yes, Derek, last year, that's right. And I don't think many people understand the importance of invasive species because they can upset the balance of nature and they can carry disease, they can compete with the native species. In fact, I remember the very first report I did on invasive species. It was with Dr Dan Minchin down in Loch Derg in the 1990s on the zebra mussel. Now, I didn't know much about the zebra mussel then, but two things stood out from that interview with him. One was the sheer numbers in Loch Derg. He told me that there were more zebra mussels in Loch Derg than there were humans on the whole of the earth. My goodness. And the second thing was the numbers of biologists studying this particular species in the US. He said that there were more biologists in America studying this than there were biologists in the whole of Ireland. So that really kind of woke me up to the whole thing of invasive species. And over the years, and particularly on that on that documentary we did last year, we talked about newer ones, the likes of the chub and, and the, the quagga mussel. And one that really stands out are the, are the terrapins, because lots of kids bought terrapins 10 or 20 years ago with the teenage mutant ninja turtles. And lots and lots of them have been appearing, particularly in the Canals. And I know last year on a summer's day, I walked along the Royal Canal here beside me and I saw three of them, three different ones. And of course, going back before that, we had giant hogweed, which was a really serious invasive species that caused a huge amount of trouble. And it's only now that I think people are really beginning to understand and to learn about these particular ones. But anyway, I'm not here today to talk about uh, invasive species. I'm here to talk about a scientist, mm-hmm. uh, Richard Barrington. He's an Irish man. He was born in Wicklow and he's a naturalist. And I think you were chatting to, to Matthew Jeb in the Botanic Gardens mm-hmm. recently. About, about this very individual. Matthew said we should do a report about this man. So here we are. <laughs> yeah, but he actually has a collection in the gardens, but that's not where we were. He's best known for his collection that he accumulated in the late 1800s. And what he did was he was in touch with keepers of lighthouses and lightships around the country. And he asked them to record information on birds killed at stations, lighthouses and so mm-hmm. on, and to send the specimens or part of the specimens to him. And that collection is now in the Natural History Museum. And to give you an idea of the size, Derek, there's something like 400 boards, a thousand skins Mm -hmm. and 3,000 legs. Oh dear, legs. (laughs) Legs, yeah. So it's a massive collection. Now, because it's so big, they're not all on display. But to learn more about Barrington and his birds, Richard and I paid a visit to the museum where we met up with keeper Paolo Viscardi. Richard Collins, that is. Richard Collins, none other than our own Richard Collins. <laughs> Talk about Richard Barrington anyway. Here it is. Hey, do you want to come over this way, Richard? We're going to take a look at the Barrington birds. Yes, up on the first floor. Very nice. Now oh, this is it. Yes, beautiful. And beautifully mounted. So these ones are the ones which Barrington actually put into the Fassero Museum that he built. Mm. Um, he, he made uh, for the reference mm. of birds. So you could come in and see what birds you'd find in the local area and... There are a few which you wouldn't find locally. There's absolutely. There. Looking up there, there's all kinds of interesting things. There's the long-tailed duck, which we used to find, but hardly ever see them now. But Richard Manley Barrington, he was quite a character. He was an incredible naturalist, very, very keen botanist as well. So mm-hmm. I know that they have some of his collection over in the Botanic Gardens. But his main kind of passion, the thing that he's known best for, 
be the birds. Now, he's an Irish man, of course. He's from County Wicklow. That's right, yeah. So, um, so Fasserow is where he was actually based. His family, the Barringtons, were Quakers, and they were very, very kind of heavily involved in all sorts of things. They fed people through the famine, and uh, they, they had a big extended family. They ran um, a free hospital. They did all sorts of things. One of them was uh, a Actually, one of the people who helped build this museum, Fred Barrington, over in Ring's End, was the uh, Iron Wright who uh, kind of made, cast the big pillars that we have that holds the building up. So the DNA of the Barringtons runs right through the museum in many, many ways. They're, they're a fascinating family, and Richard was an incredible uh, naturalist. He was a key mountaineer. He went out on survey vessels, went out to places like Iceland, Rock Hall, all sorts of places, very, very difficult, very tough environments to work in. And all of it was done in the pursuit of knowledge. About in fact, when he went to Rock Hall, didn't he go with Prager? Yes, yeah, yeah. As part of that, there was a, an expedition that went out there and the idea was to set up a weather station on the rock and to survey the birds, but the sea conditions were too rough, they couldn't land, and so they had to basically survey from the vessel and they weren't able to put in a weather station. In fact, they almost turned inside out from seasickness. And they made two trips a week apart. And here he goes out again. Uh, he, was, he was definitely very, very dedicated to understanding the world around him. And he didn't really let physical hardship get in the way of that. He, he went out there. He did a huge amount of work, huge amount of uh, knowledge of how birds migrate in and out of Ireland comes from the work that he did although most of that was actually done by citizen scientists and in terms of light station keepers all around the coast yes but he set that up he actually contacted all the lighthouse keepers and lightship mariners off ireland to have them send in specimens of birds that hit the light or their wings and feet Tell us a bit about that. You must have a collection of wings and feet somewhere. There were thousands of them sent in. Yeah, um, so there are over 3,000 um, wings and legs. So mm-hmm. they, they were sent in little envelopes. Mm-hmm. I think the preparation of them might leave a little bit to be desired, but it's a lot better than sending a whole bird in the post. Mm-hmm. Because effectively, as I say, this is a citizen science kind of uh, exercise. The idea is that people all around the coast of Ireland, these light station keepers, would find dead birds because they would fly into the light stations, they'd fly into the lights of the houses, of the lighthouses of the light ships, um, die, and then they'd be collected. And sometimes there'd be huge numbers during the migration season. And by taking the detailed information about the dates, the locations, and so on, and the weather conditions, and whatever else, and the species of the bird, we're able to build up a really, really detailed picture of the movement of birds in and out of Ireland. And that's all because of these really important data that were sent in from these light stations. But the important thing is that Light station keepers weren't necessarily expert ornithologists, and so they needed to find some way in which to validate those observations. And the way in which they decided was to take the wing and the leg from each of the birds that that was described, because that gives you enough information to get an identification on the species. And so that's what happened. And Barrington, he started the ball rolling on that, and money was coming in from an external source originally. I think it was the the British Association of Science. But that that kind of dried up fairly quickly, just as the ball was really starting to roll properly on the project. And so he funded it himself, actually, out of of his own pocket, which is, when you consider thousands of effectively prepaid envelopes being sent out all around the country... Um, and being sent back to him with specimens in, that would be a fairly expensive undertaking um, to take on yourself. 
So these uh, um, specimens here in front of us now, many of them would have collided with lights in the past. Now, what would happen if you're out in the Tusker or something like that and a bird collides with the light and you find it and it's very stormy for several days and it's gone manky and there's no fridges. You'd put it in a parcel and you would eventually they'd take it ashore and post it in Wexford and it would uh, even more manky it would arrive up here at the museum and somebody like you would have to open this put a close pick on the nose or something now what would happen then would you would you um, consider it for mounting as they call it or would you say it's too manky we won't touch it even though it's a very strange bird this is actually a, a fairly big problem um once a bird starts to decay a little bit it, you can't you can't really mount it properly for taxidermy. It doesn't work. The, you get something called skin slippage, which means that the feathers start falling out. They get very matted. The skin decomposes. The, there's fat under the skin as well, and it becomes very acidic because it starts to oxidise, and that literally burns holes in the specimen. So, really, unless you freeze it fairly quickly, a bird that strikes a lighthouse these days, you you just couldn't preserve. So most of the birds that are mounted by Barrington are actually ones which were shot. Because it went out specifically to capture specimens of those birds and they would come intact. And obviously you'd have to take the skin off, you'd have to take the insides out of the bird. The leg and the wing would be left intact because actually there's very little meat on a um, bird leg or wing, which is why they were fine to send in the post as they were. And actually you don't really need to do very much to preserve them for the long time. So the 3,000 or so we've got in our stores, they were never properly taxidermied as such, literally they snipped the wing and the leg off, mm-hmm. let it dry out a little bit, sent it in the post. And um, I think that the most that happened to it was that they were mounted on herbarium sheets, so they're nice mm-hmm. and flat, and you can store them in uh, little drawers. How many mounted specimens have you from Barrington? Off the top of my head, I know there's quite a lot, but I don't know exactly how many. Certainly in the region of kind of 500 or so, which doesn't sound like much when you're considering the 3,000 or so that we have as wings and legs and then we have another I don't know maybe one and a half thousand study skins which are birds that aren't mounted but the skins have been prepared so they're preserved the insides have been taken out they've been cleaned they've been processed so that they're not going to decay well now have you dispersed Barrington's specimens among the others you must have specimens from all over the place of birds in various taxonomic classes and so on do you disperse them or do you keep these intact is there a kind of a threshold you say well this is a, a collection from a famous person and we must keep that as a unit is that what you do We tend to actually keep things according to their type. So Mm -hmm. for the Barrington collection, for the birds' wings and legs, Mm -hmm. they all go together because we only have one collection of wings and legs and they're from Barrington. We have a few extras which were sent in after he passed away, but they're all considered part of that same collecting process and is all done for the same reason. So they're kept together. In terms of the taxidermy, we don't really clump that together according to the collector. So here we display the Barrington birds on this wall, or we had displayed them on this wall until we had to close the upper floors for the construction work that has been ongoing and is going to be continuing for a while. But the majority of the Barrington birds, but not all of them, mm-hmm. um, and the others have been integrated into collections because we find it's much more useful for researchers and for us, actually, to find things on a taxonomic basis. The name of the thing, the type of relationship it has to the other birds around it, in the case of birds... Those are the most important things for people who want to make use of the collections. Mm-hmm. And although we see the Dead Zoo and the building here on Marion Street mm-hmm. as being the kind of the jewel in the crown of, of the collections because it's got so many amazing things in it, it's only the tip of the iceberg. And 
the actual research collections and all the work that goes on behind the scenes is actually the bulk of what we're about. And really, the Dead Zoo is, is a wonderful place to come and visit, but actually, most of what we do is behind the scenes, and that's really something which we need to work on more because biodiversity is under threat. We know it is. And if we're going to understand it properly and understand change, we need to understand the biodiversity of the past in order to see how it has changed by looking at what we've got today. If you don't have that reference, you can't do that, unless you've got a time machine, and nobody has a time machine. So the collections that we hold are the only way you can really understand the species distributions of the past. And how do you understand change if you can't look at the past and compare it? Well, is there a second death? Uh, I mean, you, you, you mount a bird, or at a certain time it deteriorates, everything deteriorates. Is there a kind of limit beyond which you say, well, look, we can't keep that old specimen anymore, it's too dog-eared and flea-bitten and the rest of it, and quietly send it rip.ie equivalent for taxidermists or something like that. Do you do that? Do you dump stuff, or is this a secret? We have no problem with the idea of disposing of a specimen if it is beyond use. But what is beyond use is determined by how you use it. So it might not be fit for display anymore, but it doesn't mean that it's not fit for research. And if there's no data with it, and it's a common species, so let's say a pheasant, and you're not going to be able to find anything interesting about it, and it's not fit for display, then we might consider disposing of it. But even then, we would go through a really, really careful procedure where we would see if the handling collection wants to make use of it, or if people want to use it to train up taxidermists to deal with historic taxidermy and work on it. There are lots of different things that you can do to make that specimen, even if it is deteriorated, to make it still useful. And really, that is the whole point of us having this collection. It's here to be used in a variety of different ways. And while we have an obligation and a a desire to look after the collections and make them last as long as possible, there's no point in having them unless they are also functioning as a way of understanding the world around us and inspiring people to find out more about their world. Could you point out some of the more interesting or special specimens here in the Barrington Collection? One of, one of my favourites will be the, the dark-eyed junco, which is a, a little tiny passerine bird from North America. It looks yes. a bit like a sparrow or something. It's that sort of size. And that's just over here. It's kind of a bunting-like, finch-like bird. I remember seeing, not this one, I remember seeing the Oregon juncos in America. Lovely little birds. But anyway, you tell us, this was probably the only Irish specimen at the time, was it? Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the ones that was taken from the lighthouses. And because it was a real rarity and, and the light station keeper had never seen anything like it before, mm. it was sent intact through to Barrington, mm. uh, who, who had actually requested that any complete rarities get sent to him intact if possible. Mm. So um, they sent it through, and it was the first record of that species turning up in Ireland, and it is a North American species, mm-hmm. so clearly it had been either blown off course during heavy winds, which happens fairly frequently, and it's something which still happens today. We still have new species turning up in Ireland, which have been blown off course through heavy winds, and actually as we find um, the climate is changing, you're getting more of these big North Atlantic storms bringing these this kind of really, really strong winds over more and more birds seem to be coming over caught up in those heavy winds and we refer to them as vagrants but they turn up usually in quite poor condition because they've travelled a very, very long way with no opportunity to feed and so they'll often turn up and then pass away fairly quickly afterwards. So we actually get new specimens coming in through that route um, on a fairly regular basis. 
Oh, fabulous report, Terry. Thank you very much indeed. And the Natural History Museum is open to everyone and is... It's free in, as I understand it, isn't it, Terry? It is indeed, but at the moment, there's only the bottom floor open. So really, if you want to go, what you need to do is you need to ring in advance to book your place. But yes, it is open. And if you're interested, that documentary Terry made about invasive species will be posted on our website so you can listen back to it at your leisure. Terry, thank you very much indeed. Bye. (laughs) Slaninish. Yeah, that was very interesting about Richard Barrington. I knew you knew him as a man who wrote about plants and was a plant man and has there's a collection of Richard Barrington's plant collections in the Botanic Gardens. So I mean Yes, he, Terry mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed. So so it's not just he wasn't just a, a bird man and all of these interesting collection in the in the Natural History Museum, but but the, he was a plant man as well, a polymath if you like. In a polymath, the world of yeah. science, yeah. Nile legs and skins. Well, Derek, this great idea of the fact that, that lighthouses attract in migratory birds and lost vagrant birds was a really genius idea that by getting lighthouse keepers to send in legs and skins and remains of these birds, Barrington would be able to identify what was turning up when, what movements were happening. And he produced a wonderful book all about this uh, and it's a, it's a landmark publication in Irish ornithology. Uh, but it's a very rare book today, or at least it's rare to get a pristine copy with all the pages intact because what happened was many of these were sent to the lighthouse Uh, keepers and the lighthouse libraries around Ireland and most of those lighthouse keepers wouldn't have been hugely interested in birds necessarily and on these uh, these long stays in the lighthouses very often unfortunately they would run out of toilet paper and so what would happen is they would they would tear the pages out of books and unfortunately Barrington's book about birds was one of the prime candidates for the first to be taken off the shelf and have pages torn out of it for, for other uses let's say um, so that's what that's why it's one of the main reasons why pristine fully intact copies today are very rare which book is this exactly the book's called the migration of birds as observed at Irish lighthouses and lightships I wonder has anybody out there got a copy. Get in touch. Mooney at rte.ie.